When you rub a scratch-off ticket and usually find out you haven't won, what do you do next? Usually, you wipe away the little shavings you scratched off. But what if little shavings like that could explain what made one of the greatest racehorses of all time run so fast? We'll talk about the recovered DNA of Seabiscuit. Plus, somebody had to win the Preakness, right? We'll reset the three-year-old classic picture with the Belmont Stakes coming up on June 8th. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. It's a move to the top of the straight. It's a hit on the finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Down to the inside, War of Wills asks for a little more run. Still four to make up, but saving ground. A quarter to go at Pimlico. Warriors Charge leads the way. And on the inside, War of Will. And they're at war in the final furlong. War of Will and Tyler Gaffley slipping through on the inside. Shifting out just a tad on their left-handed energy. And here comes Everfast on the inside. And Owendale, a late bit on the outside. War of Will won. Wow, War of Will. Who said there wouldn't be any storylines in the Preakness? That's all I heard all week in all the radio interviews I was fortunate enough to do. There's nothing going on in the Preakness. Well, well, well. I think we can change all of that after War of Will's victory. One who was there to eyewitness it is Keith Sargent of NJ Advance Media, who we welcome for the first time here to win the gate. So talk to me about the vibe from the Mark Cassie barn after War of Will's win. Was he feeling revengeful? Or was he feeling very matter-of-fact? Well, he downplayed the revenge factor. I mean, he, he dismissed the question a little bit. But then you, you would hear him, and he, you, know, you could tell. You could tell. I think the one thing that really bothered him the most was the way the uh, Gary West and, and, and the Maximum Security Connections, and you can understand it, where they're coming from, but they, the way they almost turned it around and tried to blame his jockey and his horse for the way they rode the Kentucky Derby, I think he kind of got a little ticked off about it. I mean, he admitted he got ticked off about it. I think that bothered him a little bit. So, you know, when it, when it came down to it, he just wanted a chance to, to, as he put it, he just wanted a chance for a fair shot, and I think he got it. I think he got a pretty clean trip. It is not often these days that when you don't have a horse going for the Triple Crown that a trainer and an owner commit to running in all three races. Three races in five weeks is not how horses are trained anymore, yet it seems that War of Will is going to show up in the Belmont Stakes. What did Mark Cassie say about that? Yeah, he said if, if all things are a go, he indicated after the after race that you know, his, his intention is to do it. And it kind of makes sense. I agree with you that uh, typically you don't see it, but I think a lot of these you know, owners and trainers, they're, they're kind of aiming for the uh, three-year-old award, the Horse of the Year award, and I think that's probably the, uh, part of the motivation for Gary West and Jason Service as well when it comes to maximum security. Now that, you know, the Kentucky Derby was what it was, and now, you know, the Preakness, I think they're going to aim for, you know, maybe trying to prove themselves in, in the Belmont. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of the Belmont, but six weeks after the Belmont comes this little race on the Jersey Shore you know really well, Mr. Sargent. 
Might that race, the Haskell, have a bit more juice in it this year? If that's the first rematch of maximum security and more of will, I think so. It's a great point. And now, mind you, the Haskell was pushed up a week from their last Saturday in July to the Saturday beforehand. Certainly enough time. If War Will does do the uh, three races in five weeks, you know you don't know how he's going to come out of it. But it, it does set up. It's one of the you know Grade One races, one of the final ones of the summer. Certainly a lot of history there. And Maxim Security, he's being installed there right now, so he, he's working out there every day. I certainly expect if if, if he's healthy, he's going to be running in it. Then you know you're going to see a couple maybe of the Baffert horses. He loves running there. Maybe not improbable, but you know he has a couple uh, live contenders as well. So, yeah, it's setting up for to be a uh, full field and a really good field. Keith Sargent of NJ Advanced Media joining us here on In the Gate. He was at the Preakness and felt that vibe. Now, we were talking about the three-year-old picture going forward. The Belmont is coming up. I said I didn't want to get too far ahead of that, and it seems like we're going to get a good field there, including Tacitus, who wound up third in the Kentucky Derby, and some others from the Derby. How do you see the Belmont shaping up right now? I guess Omaha Beach still has to hold out a little bit of hope that maybe he can bounce back. We haven't heard much from uh, their camp in a while. Certainly, if he was to run, that would be intriguing. But, I, again, I think maximum security, right after the uh, derby, they gave him about a week off. He's been training for, for the last week since Thursday. He plans on, on running again. I'd be surprised if, if they don't try to point him, point him there. Mark Cassie, again, has already indicated that he's going to try to run War Will. Baffert, a couple of his horses who didn't run in the, in the Preakness, you would think that one or two of those guys will. And then Todd Fletcher obviously always ha- you know, has a couple horses that he's high on and he tries to steer toward the Belmont as well. So the Preakness was a bigger field than I kind of thought it was going to be. I don't know if the Belmont's going to have 13 horses, but you know, I could see 10 really, really talented horses in a really good field. Wait, did you say maximum security may point towards the Belmont? He had started training again. He had taken it like a little bit of a reprieve, started training again. Jason Service had indicated that he'd like to breeze them a little bit more. And now we're talking three weeks. So all things being equal, I, I do know that a big part of their motivation is horse of the year. How do you do that? You know, it would be awfully hard for, for him to win horse of the year without running in another triple crown race and, and proving himself and proving the uh, derby was a fluke. And now he has that $20 million bet, which uh, I'm sure you probably talked about a little bit, where he'd like to try to uh, get a couple of these horses and improve himself against Warb Will and Long Range Toddy and a couple of those, of those horses as well. I agree with what Randy Moss of NBC, an ESPN alumnus, said during the Preakness, that a bonus like that, while sporting and making things interesting, could be a really bad thing if you have jockeys riding to beat maximum security rather than to win the race. You could run the race very differently depending on what you're trying to do. I don't know if that bonus works out as well as it sounds. It's a gimmick, and I do think Mark Cassie and a couple of the other trainers that I talked to down in Baltimore, they just don't don't like it. It is kind of gimmicky and it's not what they're all about and i can see where where gary west is coming from that he just wants his horse to be able to prove himself and and, and to say yes he was the best horse on, on may 4th and he's the best horse of, of, of the three-year-old class and he's going to do whatever he can but in, in a lot of ways the trainers and the horsemen that we talk to down there they don't like it at all well if these horses stay sound there's a little bit of juice to bring the casual crowd a little bit closer to racing beyond the three triple crown races to see how this all plays out 
Well, Keith Sargent, it should be a fun summer. Thanks for sharing a few minutes with us. Anytime. Thanks again. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Can you believe that just over 70 years since his death, we can still unlock the secrets in the DNA of one of the greatest racehorses of the 1930s? What we've learned about Seabiscuit and how the lessons can be applied today is straight ahead as the In the Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. He was one of the greatest racehorses of all time, and he lived an awfully long time ago. And the head and head Seabiscuit on the inside. Bionic with War Admiral second. Seabiscuit leads by a length. Now Seabiscuit by a length for the half. Seabiscuit is the winner by four lengths. That, of course, was Seabiscuit's famous 1938 match race victory against Triple Crown winner War Admiral. Seabiscuit was an unlikely champion, coming from what we could graciously call pedestrian breeding and not reaching the winner's circle in any of his first 17 races. I mean, these days, how many horses even make 17 starts, period? Eventually, the Biscuit won 33 races, including that memorable match race, and his everyman quality captured the heart of a nation starving for not just a hero, but a working-class hero, with so many people suffering during the Great Depression. But beyond the romance of his story... What was it about Seabiscuit that made him run so well? He wasn't exactly the physical specimen that Bob Baffert would have picked out of a sale. I'll bet the thought never even occurred to you that we could figure out on a genetic level what made the biscuit tick. Well, if we're spending time building up to it, then it must be happening. And indeed it is. Researchers at Binghamton University in upstate New York, of all places, have been able to extract a little still-existing DNA of Seabiscuit. How did they do it, and what have we learned from it? For more insight, we welcome in one of the main hands-on specialists who conducted the experiment, Ph.D. student Kate DeRosa of the Institute of Equine Genomics at Binghamton University. Welcome! So, as I understand it, this whole thing started when someone from the Seabiscuit Heritage Foundation approached your group to examine DNA from one of Seabiscuit's currently living descendants. He only sired 108 foals, but there are still some living descendants. How did the project get back then from the descendants to the genuine article himself? We ended up finding out from the family who had owned Seabiscuit that they still actually had the hooves. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what they used to do back around when Seabiscuit was alive with racehorses, but they would basically remove their hooves upon death and then they would silver them and make them like mantelpieces or ashtrays. So they still had them in the family and they actually said, not only do we have them, but you could use them for testing. So that, that's basically how we ended up getting them and starting this whole project. So the hooves would almost be like a baby's first shoes cast in bronze, right? Exactly, yeah. S same idea, but, you know, big, big-time racehorse. A little bigger, too. Right. So in <laughs> layman's terms, then, how did the process go to extract DNA from the hooves of this great horse whose hooves were cast in silver? So this is actually interesting, but... A bit tricky. So since they do have silver on them, the whole top is metal. Uh, but on the bottom of the hoof, 
it was just preserved. We're not sure what, but we were basically able to drill through that outer coating, which is basically like a fingernail, and try to get at the coffin bone inside the hoof. And by doing that, we're able to get bone powder. And when you have bone powder, you're able to get DNA from it. What kind of condition was it in? The hooves themselves were in great condition, probably because they were preserved and you know made into this decorative piece for the house. So they were in really great shape. But like I said, they were preserved,、uh, which makes DNA difficult to deal with sometimes because preservatives can interfere with that. And also, after death, DNA starts degrading. So we were able to get some DNA, but it wasn't in the best shape. It's not like if we were to go ahead and take a sample from a living horse right now. But we did have enough to actually do some genotyping from him. So what did you find? <laughs> so we were able to look at some racing genes, and basically, what we found. Was that his genotype matched what we expected for his race record? That he could win short races that required sprinting, but he also won races that required stamina and distance. And his genotype is actually pretty rare in modern racehorses, since nowadays I'm sure sure you know they're bred more for speed instead of distance running. And his genotype also explains why he was sort of. A late bloomer in terms of his racing career,、uh, since you know he didn't do so didn't do so well in his first few years of racing. Well, without going too far down the rabbit hole, for those of us without the background that you have, what does that mean? The genes he had for sprinting, the genes he had for distance, why he didn't do well early. What shows that? So we actually look at a group of variants within the genome that are basically associated with. How how good you are at doing distance running, or you know if you're more of a sprinter, and it's something similar that's looked at in human athletes a lot, whether they are better at running fast or if they're better at running so like sort of slow and steady over a long distance. So basically, we were just looking at that in horses as well to determine what type of racing they would be good at, and he has a genotype that. Is more consistent with being able to do short races, the sprinting, or the stamina and distance. But again, that's not something we see too often nowadays. Is this a binary thing? You know, like ones and zeros in computer code, stamina genes versus sprinting genes. It's a little more complicated than that.、Um, so we're looking at multiple genes. So it's it's a matter of what you know if you have a one or a zero in multiple places. So it's not as simple as、uh, one genomic position being good or bad. It's how they all sort of stack up together when you look at them as a whole. Our guest here, Kate DeRosa, is a PhD candidate at Binghamton University's Institute for Equine Genomics. Now, what other kind of characteristics is your team studying from this DNA? So we're hoping to actually get some more DNA from Seabiscuit. Shortly, there have been some new extraction methods that came out last fall that should let us get better quality DNA. This way, instead of doing a few genes, we could do some whole genome studies to get a better idea of 
all the variants Seabiscuit could have had. But we're also hoping to uh, use some hair we just received from Man of War, which, as you guys know, is uh, Seabiscuit's paternal grandsire. And we're hoping we can actually do some comparative studies between the two and see where they're the same and where they're different to maybe better understand their race records. Have you found anything yet with the Man of War data? We have not. We just received them a few days ago. So we have not actually gotten as far as looking at data just yet, but we're hoping to very soon. How exciting. You know we're going to have to call you back with that. (laughs) I hope so. That would be great. Thoroughbred horsemen and horsewomen like to believe that as the generations of horses move on, the breed evolves and presumably improves. So how can we apply to today the data from these two horses, legendary but very old in the evolutionary process? I think it gives a bit of insight into, I guess, the way racing has changed, right? Because as you mentioned they're much older horses. They were around in the first half of the 1900s, and the type of racehorse that's being bred is different. So Seabiscuit, like I mentioned, his genotype is rare in modern horses, and he was a great racer for back then, but we don't know how he would stack up today, right? Because the way horses are bred now, we're looking more for speed over distance running. But in terms of the genetics of it, we would have to actually look. I, I have not personally looked at how Seabiscuit, say, would compare to one of the modern Triple Crown winners or something like that. Okay, let's just say it for what it is. If you could get to the point in your life where you could earn a doctorate for working on Seabiscuit and Man of War, would you do it? Of course you would do it. But we're glad that this project is in the hands of somebody who really knows what she's doing. So, Kate DeRosa, thank you so much. This is so exciting. <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see what we got with Man of War. Our thanks once again to Kate DeRosa and to Keith Sargent. He made his name as a funny man in the 70s and 80s. Tim Conway made even great comedians laugh. How many nights did I sit with Grandma and watch the Carol Burnett show and smile with each pratfall, joke, and gaff? Tim Conway loved horse racing, tried to schedule his show tours in cities that had racing so he could go. His well-known forlorn character, Lyle Dorff, even played a jockey. The respect Conway had for riders was primo. In 1986, Conway emceed the St. Paul Derby and wanted to donate his appearance fee. So he asked if there was a fund to help riders who'd gotten injured, but found to his surprise there wasn't any. So Conway started the Don Macbeth Fund for a rider who died of cancer. The fund helped riders out for 25 years. In 1989, Conway received the big sport of turfdom, but no honor conveys how he held the sport so dear. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.